Welcome to Chomping Down the Dietetic Exam, where I, Dietitian Faraz, and you, an awesome person, join forces to chomp down dietetic concepts into digestible bites and provide you with practice questions, rationales, and tips to conquer your dietetic exam, and you will conquer it because you are smart, you are skilled, and you got this. Hit it! Hi everyone, thank you for tuning in. Hope you're doing well and staying safe. It's really an amazing time right now because my adorable baby girl has made her debut in the world. Woohoo! <laughs> I just want to thank all of you who sent messages on a safe delivery. I really appreciated it. And both mama and baby are doing well, thank goodness. Now, back to getting you all licensed. Before diving into the topics for today's episode, which will consist of the vitamin D pathway, randomized clinical trials, and parallel versus crossover design, I got some really, really exciting news I gotta share with you. So over the years, I've had a lot of podcast listeners and students ask me to develop a program that covers everything you need to know about the RD exam. Well, guess what? That's happened. I've developed a program that's really focused on visual learning, and this program consists of 17 video lectures that cover all four domains and every topic that's relevant to the RD exam. These topics are covered with full explanations, tons of mnemonics, illustrations, animations, tables, and each video lecture also has a pre and post test and a super duper colorful set of corresponding notes. This full program is now available on our website at chompdowndietetics.com. Make sure to check out the program sneak peek video on the website's homepage and feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions. With that being said, let's get into it. What is the name for the active form of vitamin D? A. Cholecalciferol B. 7-dehydrocholesterol C. Calcitriol D. Calcidiol So the vitamin D activation pathway is one of those concepts that can be a bit tricky and fairly intricate specifically because you can activate vitamin D through sun and or diet. So there are multiple pathways to cover with different names for each important structure. So I've had requests made to cover the general need to know aspects of the pathway. And I've also had requests to cover the more detailed pathophysiology of the pathways. So I'll be covering both here. Now, here's the main super simplified pathway that I think covers the important stuff. Vitamin D from the sun to our skin activates 7-dehydrocholesterol. This becomes cholecalciferol. Cholecalciferol goes to the liver and becomes calcidiol. Then goes to the kidneys and becomes calcitriol. This is generally considered the active form. You can remember this by focusing on the tri part in calcitriol. When I hear tri, I think two things tricycle because of my toddler and I think of a triathlete because the Olympics are here. Riding a tricycle requires a lot of activity and you need to be very active 
in order to be a triathlete. So both terms are related to being active, and you can associate either with the term Kelsey try all, reminding you it's the active form. So this pretty much covers what you'll need to know. However, we're going to recover this process in more depth for those of you that told me you want to have a refresher with the pathophysiology. Vitamin D can be absorbed and metabolized through sunlight and or food. Now, to metabolize vitamin D by sunlight, we need to be aware of something called 7-dehydrocholesterol, which is considered to be a zoosterol. Just a quick review from your biochem class that sterols of plants are called phytosterols, and sterols of animals are called zoosterols, which is an appropriate name since a lot of animals live at the zoo. So this 7-dehydrocholesterol is found in the keratinocytes in our skin. Now, once our skin gets exposed to enough sunlight, the 7-dehydrocholesterol absorbs UV light, and the 7-dehydrocholesterol first converts to recalciferol, aka pre-vitamin D3, and isomerization causes the pre-vitamin D3 to change its shape to form cholecalciferol, aka vitamin D3. We'll go back to cholecalciferol when we're discussing the vitamin D pathway by dietary intake. For now, let's continue along the sunlight pathway. So, now we got cholecalciferol, aka D3, and it's going to travel to the small intestine, combine with bile salts into my cells, and get absorbed by the intestinal cells. Once absorbed, it then gets packaged into chylomicrons, which travel to the lymph and enter the blood. Since cholecalciferol is fat-soluble, it has to have a carrier to help it travel, so it gets combined with vitamin D binding proteins, which then head to the liver. In the liver, the enzyme 25-hydroxylase adds a hydroxyl group to the 25th carbon of cholecalciferol. This turns cholecalciferol into calcidiol. Calcidiol then decides it wants to go back into the blood, so again, it joins vitamin D binding protein and enters the blood until it gets into the kidneys. Now, the enzyme 1-alpha-hydroxylase adds a hydroxyl group to the first carbon of calcidiol, turning it into calcitriol, which is the form that exerts its action in the small intestine and bone to raise serum calcium and phosphorus levels. So, it's an active form of vitamin D. Now, we also get vitamin D from animal and plant sources as well, from something like fish. It already has cholecalciferol. So once we intake the fish, for example, the cholecalciferol goes through the same pathway we went over. It goes to the liver, becoming calcidiol, then goes to the kidney and becomes calcitriol. Plant and fungi sources, such as mushrooms exposed to UV light or yeast, can also provide vitamin D, but they provide it in a form called ergocalciferol. Ergocalciferol also follows the same pathway as cholecalciferol, except the names are slightly different. So, in the liver, 
instead of calcidiol, you get ur-calcidiol. Then in the kidney, instead of calcitriol, you get ur-calcitriol. You just got to add an ur. Now, again, I think the general pathway that I highlighted earlier will give you the info that you need. But in case you were wondering about specifics, we just laid them out. With that being said, let's go back to the appetizer question. What is the name for the active form of vitamin D? A. Cholecalciferol. B. 7-dehydrocholesterol. C. Calcitriol. D. Calcidiol. So let's go through each answer choice. A and B can both be eliminated because we get cholecalciferol either from the diet or the conversion of 7-dehydrocholesterol. Neither cholecalciferol or 7-dehydrocholesterol are considered active. So we can eliminate these answer choices. Now we have C and D, calcitriol and calcidiol. Well, if we focus on the tri in calcitriol, we know riding a tricycle is an active thing to do. And triathletes are very active people. Using this mnemonic, we can differentiate between the choices, making it clear the correct answer is C, calcitriol. All right, let's move on to our next appetizer question. Here we go. Which of the following is an example of an RCT? A, a study consists of two groups, A and B. Group A consisted of participants who had been smoking for 10 or more years. Group B consisted of participants who had never smoked. Both groups were followed for 10 years to see if they develop COPD. B. A study consists of two groups, A and B. Group A consisted of participants who had liver disease. Group B consisted of participants who did not have liver disease. Both groups were compared to see what proportion of them had been consuming alcohol on a regular basis for 10 years. C. A study examining the effects of a cholesterol drug randomly placed participants into two groups, A and B. Group A received the cholesterol drug, whereas Group B received a placebo. D. None of the studies mentioned are an example of an RCT. So, I definitely love research because that's what I live and breathe now <laughs> every day. So, any opportunity to talk about research, I'm absolutely ecstatic. And this is no exception because RCTs are super, super helpful. They stand for randomized clinical trials. And in an RCT, you're trying to determine the efficacy of a treatment. That's the whole basis for it. An RCT is an experimental study that is controlled by the researcher. That's a key word, controlled. It is not an observational study where the researcher observes the events and does not control them, such as a case control study or a cohort study. Those are observational studies. In an RCT, you have at least two groups being compared. That's another key feature is that there's at least two groups, always at least two. You'll have either one or more intervention groups and the intervention group will receive the main treatment you're trying to test the efficacy for. You will also have a control group which will either receive an alternative treatment, no treatment, or a placebo. 
which is super similar to a treatment, but it's missing a key ingredient. These two groups are compared and evaluated, and the results of the evaluation are determined by comparing the progress of the experimental group against the control group. You always hear that randomized clinical trials are considered to be the gold standard, but why is that? Well, for one, RCTs are considered to be the most strict method of determining whether a cause-effect relationship exists between the interaction and the outcome. Just by the nature of its design, RCTs eliminate a ton of variability, which is something you want to lessen as much as possible to be able to show that your results are indeed due to your intervention and not something else. Also, a major feature of RCTs is the assignment of participants to either the intervention groups or the control group through a random process. Big key word there. This randomization is super important because it prevents bias in selecting participants and placing them into groups. If you are using randomization to place participants in groups, then you know you didn't place them into groups based on any of their personal characteristics. By using randomization, theoretically, any difference in outcome can be explained only by the treatment. So basically, that's why you hear that phrase that RCTs are the gold standard. RCTs are considered to be super awesome because they eliminate a lot of bias and the results achieved from the trial can confidently be attributed to the intervention. With that being said, let's get back to our appetizer question. Which of the following is an example of an RCT? A. A study consists of two groups, A and B. Group A consisted of participants who had been smoking for 10 or more years. Group B consisted of participants who had never smoked. Both groups were followed for 10 years to see if they develop COPD. B. A study consists of two groups, A and B. Group A consisted of participants who had liver disease. Group B consisted of participants who did not have liver disease. Both groups were compared to see what proportion of them had been consuming alcohol on a regular basis for 10 years. C. A study examining the effects of a cholesterol drug randomly placed participants into two groups, A and B. Group A received the cholesterol drug, whereas Group B received a placebo. D. None of the studies mentioned are an example of an RCT. Alright, this is a tough question because there's so much verbiage in the answer choices, but you can come across that sometimes. So, Let's break down each answer choice. Answer choice A has two groups, and an RCT requires at least two groups, so that requirement is fulfilled. Was there any randomization in this study? Nope. Randomization is not mentioned, and it would not be advisable for this kind of study because it would be really confusing. If you randomly allocated people who were either smoking or not smoking, into the same groups and then see if they develop COPD, how could you tell apart any difference between groups? 
when they contain the same mix of participants, right? Just wouldn't make sense. Also, the fact that group A consists of people who smoke and group B consists of people who don't smoke are not conditions created by the researcher. Smoking or not smoking was a natural occurrence that the researcher had no control over. They were just characteristics the participants had. So this is another clue that this would not be an RCT. There's really no manipulation being done by the researcher here. Going to B, we can use the same rationale where even though there are two groups, no randomization has occurred and the participants either have or have not had liver disease. Both of those are not conditions created by the researcher. Liver disease or lack thereof is a natural occurrence that the researcher had no control over. They were just characteristics the participants had. So we can eliminate this answer choice as well. How about C, the cholesterol drug study? It has at least two groups, so that requirement is fulfilled. Was there any randomization in the study? Yes. It was specifically mentioned that participants were randomly assigned to groups. You can use the word randomized or randomly to clue you in that an RCT may be the answer. Now, group A received the drug and group B received the placebo. Placebo is another keyword that clues us in that this might be an RCT. Let's move on to D. None of the studies mentioned are an RCT. Well, considering that C, the cholesterol study, involves at least two groups, randomization and the placebo, it's safe to assume that it is indeed an RCT. So we can eliminate answer D, leaving us with C, which is an example of an RCT, and is the correct answer. All right, let's move on to our next appetizer question. Here we go. A study consisted of three groups. Participants were randomly assigned to groups in which they stayed throughout the study. Group A received treatment A. Group B received treatment B. Group C received a placebo. Which of the following best describes what type of design this study is an example of. A. Randomized clinical trial crossover study. B. Randomized clinical trial parallel study. C. Randomized clinical trial. D. All of the above. Now, there are different types of RCT designs, and two that were specifically requested to go over were the parallel study and crossover study. So, it's easier to distinguish between the two based on the treatment, so that's what we're going to do here. In a parallel randomized clinical trial, whatever group participants are randomly assigned to, that's the group they remain in for the duration of the study. So let's say you're doing an RCT looking at the efficacy of two drugs, drug A and drug B. So you'll have group A receive drug A, you'll have group B receive drug B, and you'll have a third group who will receive a placebo. Once the study is over, you'll see what happened to all the groups. At no point will participants switch groups. They will remain loyal to the group they were assigned. To remember 
this whole idea of a parallel design, think about parallel lines. Parallel lines are two lines in the same plane that are at equal distance from each other and never meet. So in a parallel study, participants remain in the same group for equal amounts of time and never meet. In a crossover study, participants are randomly assigned to a group. They'll receive a treatment and then they'll go through what's known as a washout period where basically they don't receive any treatment for a period of time to minimize potential carryover effects from a treatment. And then at some point, once the period is over, they will cross over from their original group to another group during the study period. Eventually, all participants will have been a part of each group, so in essence, they receive all treatments. Even if participants are initially placed in a placebo group, they will also eventually receive all treatments. Now, there's a phrase associated with crossover studies, which is that each participant acts as their own control. What that is referring to is all participants are placed in all the groups, so they end up receiving both treatments and a placebo. Since it's the same people receiving treatments and a placebo, when they're receiving the placebo, they are technically acting as their own control. So that's what the phrase means. I don't really like that phrase much, but in case you were wondering what it meant, that's what it's referring to. Another term that is associated with this type of design is two period. Sometimes there's three period and so on and so forth. And what that means is basically the process that we were referring to when participants switch groups. So for example, let's say there's a two period crossover design. In that first period, you'll have group A and group B and group A will receive the treatment, group B will receive a placebo. That's the first period. Then you have your washout where you kind of just give time for people to take a break. And then you go to the second period where all the people that were in the group that received the placebo are now going to be placed in the group that received the treatment and vice versa. So really you're just alternating. So in a two period crossover design, for example, that's the process that's happening. You're just alternating each period, the participants from the groups they were in to the group that they haven't been in yet that they now will be in. Now, does this process sound like it takes a lot of time? Yup, and it does. And that's a big drawback of these types of studies is that because you're going through essentially having all the participants fulfill all the group requirements to either receive a treatment or receive a placebo or whatever the case may be, it takes a ton of time. But because it takes a ton of time does not mean you shouldn't do it because there is a big advantage to this type of design. And that is referring to the idea that there's less variability because you're measuring a participant's reaction to both the treatment 
and a placebo, and it's the same participant. So you really get a true sense of just how effective that treatment is, as opposed to a study design where there's a certain group of people in the treatment group and there's a different group of people in the placebo group. Both groups of people don't get both the placebo and the treatment, right? So you don't really know what the effects of both are on the same person. However, in this design, you do see what the effects are on the same person because everybody involved gets every treatment and placebo. So it is beneficial from that point, but it's super time consuming. With that being said, let's move on to our appetizer question. A study consisted of three groups. Participants were randomly assigned to groups in which they stayed throughout the study. Group A received treatment A. Group B received treatment B. Group C received a placebo. Which of the following best describes what type of design this study is an example of? A. Randomized clinical trial crossover study. B. Randomized clinical trial parallel study, C, randomized clinical trial, D, all of the above. So let's start with A, randomized clinical trial crossover study. Well, the question is telling us that participants were randomly assigned to groups in which they stayed throughout the study. And we know for sure that in a crossover study, that doesn't happen because essentially participants cross over to different groups, whether if it's a treatment group or a placebo group. So by its definition, this can't be the correct answer. So we can eliminate this answer choice. How about B? So this very much can be the answer. And that's because we know the hallmark feature of a parallel study is that participants stay in the groups that they were assigned to throughout the study. So let's pocket this and look at the other answers just to be sure. C, randomized clinical trial. Okay, so this is where it gets kind of tricky, right? Because the question is asking which of the following best describes what type of design this study is an example of. That keyword best is the main thing you got to look at because technically this is also a correct answer. However, because the question is asking for what the best answer is, is this really the best answer? No, it's not because it's the general answer, right? Answer B also says randomized clinical trial, but it includes a parallel study aspect to it. So it's a more specific answer. So we can eliminate C because it's such a general answer. How about D? All of the above, by definition, a crossover and a parallel study are not at all alike. So we can eliminate this answer as well, leaving us with B, randomized clinical trial, parallel study as the correct answer. All right, that's a wrap for today's episode. Remember to check us out on chompdowndietetics.com where we have our program that covers all relevant topics on the RD exam with video lectures and colorful notes. You can also hit us up on our socials, which are listed in the episode descriptions. 
and this is where you can request topics and just let us know how you're doing with your exam journeys. With that being said, I will catch you later. Bye-bye.